I'm going to invite you to turn again in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We've been teaching on the name of Jesus. We want to continue that this morning. John chapter 14. While you're turning there, let me remind you of some things. John's gospel is the last of the four gospels to be written. Uh, there's been um, um, a number of years, decades, in between the, other, the writing of the other three gospels and John's gospel. John writes this toward the end of his life, and it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is um, making sure that he leaves us with uh, information that kind of fills in the gaps uh, that, uh, that are left from some of the other Gospels. John's Gospel doesn't really cover many of the things that the other three Gospels do cover. There's a little bit of overlap. But for the most part, John's Gospel is new information. He gives us uh, some reference to uh, events that are contained in the other three for, uh, uh, for context. But, uh, but by and large, the, the things that are in the Gospel of John are unique to um, uh, the information that we have about Jesus. And one of the things that, uh, that is the most outstanding to me or stands out to me um, the most is uh, the, the information that John gives us about the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, what we know of as the Last Supper. Uh, the other three Gospels just tell us about it. They tell us about the, the communion cup, and then they move forward. But John gives us information about what Jesus told them. And, uh, and that's contained primarily in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John. I want to pull out a couple of verses that have to do with, uh, with what, um, again, stands out to me to be the uh, central element or the, the most important point, the, the takeaway lines from uh, that night, that last night with Jesus. And that has to do with his name and the use of his name. So in John chapter 14, let's start reading in verse 12. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And, verse 13, whatsoever you shall ask. The word ask means to call for, require, demand. It does not mean to request. He's not talking about prayer. He's talking about the use of his name. And whatsoever you shall call for, require, demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He goes further in verse 14. He says, if you ask, same word, call for, require, demand, anything in my name, I will do it. Skipping over to John chapter 15. Jesus said in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. Here's this same word, call for, require, demand. He's not really talking about prayer. It works in prayer, but he's not really talking about prayer exclusively at least. So he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, call for, require, demand what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now notice verse 8. Herein, in other words, you using my name with results. Herein is my Father glorified. And notice what Jesus calls that. Notice what he calls you getting results in his name. He calls that bearing fruit. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now, folks, uh, I don't want to take a long time on this, but please notice what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, my disciples get results in my name. He didn't say my disciples belong to a certain church. He didn't say my disciples follow a certain ritual. He said, my disciples get results in the name of Jesus. My disciples use successfully and effectively my name. Skip with me over to verse 16. Jesus said, um, well, let's start in verse 15. I, I just like verse 15, so I'm going to read that one too. Henceforth, I call you not servants. 
For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. Now the word friends is a covenant term. It means literally, it means covenant partner. It doesn't mean we're buddies. It means we're committed to one another. Totally and completely. Now why is he saying that there's a change in them? He said, no no longer am I going to call you servants. While Jesus was here on the earth, they were servants. Now, why is he changing it to friends? Why is he changing the relationship, or at least the, uh, the definition of the relationship, to covenant partners? Because he's about to go to the cross. This is the last night. This is the night that he's uh, betrayed. And he goes to the cross to make a sacrifice for mankind. Up until this point, they could only be servants. They could only operate limitedly in the authority that he delegated to them while he was here on the earth. But as soon as he goes to the cross and is raised from the dead, then they can be born again. They can become children of God so that then they become covenant partners, not just servants. So he's speaking to you and me. He's speaking to the day that we live in. He's speaking to what will occur just in a matter of a few days for them. What's occurred 2,000 years ago for us. So he said, henceforth, I call you no more servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Now notice what he says the difference in a servant and a covenant partner is. Knowledge. He said, servants don't know what the Lord is doing. In other words, servants just carry out actions that are given, activities that are directed. Servants just carry out directives. Servants carry out orders. Friends aren't like that. Friends are in on what's going on. Are you with me? So he's talking about you knowing and understanding the, the will of God. He's talking about revelation by the Holy Ghost. Henceforth I call you no more servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Notice what Jesus is interested in. He's interested in lasting fruit. Now let me ask you a question before we read the rest of the verse. Does fruit mean something different in verse 16 than it meant in verse 8? Notice in verse 8, he said, Herein is my Father glorified through the effective and successful use of his name. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. Now, when he talks about fruit in verse 16, is he talking about something different? Of course not. So he's still talking about the use of his name, isn't he? So what are you called and ordained to do? Effectively use his name. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, this is the first time that Jesus says that God will do something about his name. Up until this point, he's been talking about what I'll do. Now, he says God will recognize the name of Jesus and back it up as well. Finally, in John chapter 16... Verse 23, Jesus said, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now, this word ask is a different word. It means to request. One translation says it this way. And in in that day, talking about the day following his resurrection, the day when we become covenant partners in relationship with God and not just servants. He said, and in that day, you'll ask me no more questions. They've been looking to Jesus for the answers to anything and everything they've needed for the last three years. He's been their source of support. These guys have left their businesses. You remember Peter and James and John were in the fishing business. They left their fishing business with, their father, with the, the father of James and John and followed Jesus, left everything behind. You remember Peter calls that to Jesus' remembrance. 
He said, Master, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, well, there's a, there's a hundredfold return to people that have left everything to follow me. So they've been, uh, they've been dependent on Jesus for his soul support, for their soul support for the last three years when they've been with him, right? So he said, and in that day, you'll ask me nothing. In other words, he's saying the relationship changes who you talk to. The relationship changes who you talk to. Now that you're, when you were servants, you had to talk to me because I was the son of God. But the relationship is going to make you sons of God so you don't have to talk to me or through me anymore. And in that day you shall ask me nothing, request nothing of me. Verily, verily, I say unto you whatsoever you shall ask. Here's the word that we've seen over in John 14 and 15. Call for or require demand. Whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked nothing in my name? Call for, require, demand. Up till now, you haven't demanded anything in my name. Ask, call for, require, demand, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Notice here's another reason. Here's another characteristic of the use of the name of Jesus. Jesus wants your joy to be full. Now, folks... I'm going to make a general statement here or kind of pose it as a question. It's, by the way, when I ask questions, I pretty much know the answers to them. (laughs) They're to get you to think. So I'm not really looking for people to respond. but, But here's a question for you. How many things are there in your life that the power of God being on display wouldn't cause your joy to be full? Let me say it another way. Wouldn't the power of God fix most of everything that you're unjoyful about? Sure would me. And Lord, I don't need much, just a drop here or there. That'll fix my situations. Well, what do you think Jesus is talking about? Hitherto you have asked, call for, required nothing in my name, but ask. Make a demand on my name, and you shall receive that your joy shall be full. Verse 26, notice he says, in that day you shall ask in my name. In that day, talking about our day, the day of the church, the day of the resurrection. When we can be children of God, born again. And in that day you shall call for, require, or ask, uh, call for, require, demand in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray. Now this is the word request. This is the same word that's used, translated ask the first time in verse 23. He said, I'm not saying that I'll request the Father for you. Verse 27, because the Father himself loves you. In other words, you can talk directly to the Father. That's the point Jesus is making. Here's how the relationship changes things. You don't have to talk to me or through me. You can talk directly to the Father. Use my name and the Father will give it to you. Because the Father loves you because you've loved me. And I believe that I came out from God. Do you understand? Are you getting a little bit better picture of what being in the name of Jesus means? Now, let me ask you a question. And and this one I want you to think about. And, And this one you can respond to if you want to. What do you get from these verses? What one word would you summarize is the takeaway thought or idea for these verses that we picked out that Jesus told his disciples on the last night that he was with them? When he talks about he that believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also. What's he mean? Isn't he talking about miracles? Now, miracles aren't the only works Jesus did. Jesus preached, he taught, he healed the sick. He cast out devils. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He did all kinds of things. But if we were going to summarize them, wouldn't we say that most of the the time when we think about Jesus' works, we're thinking about power? 
or miracles. And then when he says, whatever you call for requiring my name, do you think about little things? When Jesus is saying, I want you to use my name, I want you to get results, that's the sign, not only is that the Father is glorified in the Son, but, but uh, this is the way you bear fruit. This is what glorifies the Father. Do you think about little stuff? Do you think about, yeah, well, I do need an extra 20 bucks this week. In the name of Jesus. Is that the way you think? It's not the way any of us think, is it? We think miracles. Why? That was rhetorical. Why do we think miracles? Do you know the answer to that? The answer to that is very simple. Because we were made in the image of a miracle working God. Miracles is the only thing. That which supersedes the natural laws. Of this world. Is the only thing that satisfies the heart of mankind. It's the only thing. The heart hunger. For a relationship with God is the reason that there are religions in the earth. But if you look at the religions of the earth, there is no other religion that will provide. And I really hate to use the word religion in context with Christianity, but you'll understand what I mean as I explain. There's no power to Islam. There's no miracle. There's no miracle working power to Buddhism or Confucianism or any other isms out there. There's no miracle working power to it. Christianity is the only religion belief that was born in miracles the only one and if you rob christianity of the miracle working power of god then all you're left with is doctrine there has never ever been a time when the church has been rescued from a backslidden condition because of the philosophical teachings of man never But you know what the church has been rescued from backslidden conditions by? Simple men who have a fresh vision of Jesus and the power of his name. That's why your heart and my heart craves miracles. Now the devil will tell you it's because you're looking for a show. And I don't doubt that some people are looking for a show. I wouldn't mind seeing a show every now and then myself. But that doesn't mean we're looking for the wrong thing. Yeah, but Jesus said an evil and a wicked generation seeks a sign. Well, if signs and results and fruit are wrong for us to expect, then Jesus was wrong for telling us that we'd get him in his name. Folks, I'm not talking about something selfish. I'm not talking about something that points to us. I'm talking about something that's real. Something that makes a change in people's lives. Now, why does Jesus want his name to work? God could set this thing up any way he wanted to, right? He didn't have to give man authority on the earth. He could have kept man as a servant for the entirety of, of the, uh, the history of the world or however long the world will last. He didn't have to set it up the way they did, did he? It wasn't like somebody was looking over his shoulder and saying, do this or else. He set it up the way that he wanted it to be. Why did he set it up this way? Why did he create a hunger in man for two things? A hunger for a relationship with him and a hunger to see the supernatural. Why? Why did he set his name in position to do miracle works if not to produce miracles? 
Well, if we answer that question honestly, we'd have to say that the working, the miracle working power of God is here on the earth provided in the name of Jesus for one and only one thing, and that is to transform men's lives. Herein is his Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Notice Jesus did not say, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that you can make a name for yourself. No, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Folks, miracles are the only things that really transform people's lives. Now, don't get me wrong. We can get narrow-minded on miracles. We can talk about miracles as being the raising of the dead or the healing of the sick, and that be, uh, that be as far as we look. But every answered prayer is a miracle. Every new birth is a miracle. Everything that God, every revelation, every thought, divine thought that comes to you is a miracle. So we need to recognize miracles for what they are. Miracles are very simply divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Big to small. Small to great. Big or little. Anything that's supernatural, anything that's of God that supersedes this natural law in the course of this world is a miracle. I think what happens a lot of times is we overlook the small things that are just as miraculous. I'm not sure God looks at things as big and small. I know that he, the, the, I know that, that men see things from an outward appearance and God looks at the heart of things. I know that the devil will try to attack you and say you don't have enough faith. But enough faith is very rarely ever the issue. It's the use of faith, not the size of faith, that counts. See, the Bible talks about faith in terms of strong versus weak, not big versus little. I'm not sure God looks at anything as big and little. I mean, the virgin birth was big, but it didn't look big. Divine revelation is big, but it doesn't always look big. Jesus teaching the words of life were big, but people walked away from them. So it sure didn't look big to him, to them, did it? You see the point I'm trying to make? I think one thing... um, I'm reminded of something that happened. I'm really kind of ashamed to tell the story, but it happened, so I'll tell it. A number of years ago, we had um, Brother George Stormont in our church several times. As a matter of fact, he's since gone home to be with the Lord, came to us as as a a man in his 80s. And um, we became acquainted with him kind of, um, well, it was, I counted it to be a a God thing because I had heard about him, but uh, uh, had never had a chance to meet him. He was um, um, a young minister that was very close to Smith Wigglesworth right at the end of his life. Matter of fact, it was Brother Stormont's church that Smith Wigglesworth went home to be with the Lord in at a funeral service. And, uh, and so he has, as a result, um, well, Wigglesworth used to call uh, Brother Stormont the Benjamin of his old age. So when Wigglesworth was in his 80s, I think he died at 87, um, went home to be with the Lord at 87. Um, Brother Stormont was a man in his 20s. And so um, uh, I was very interested to get to know him. I was very interested to pick his brain and bless his heart. You know, 80-something-year-old 80, 80 guys, they don't usually have the strength and the stamina that younger people do, and I was a much younger person then. And so I just wore this old fellow out, bless his heart. 
I'd take him to lunch and just, just pepper him with questions and hardly give him time to chew his food. And, you know, I'm not sure he really enjoyed being around me the way that, the way that it did. But I'm just trying to suck every bit of knowledge out. I mean, I'm, th- this guy's old. Who knows how much longer he's got. If he makes it through lunch, I want to make sure to get everything I can. <clears throat> so, uh, you know. So I was, I was really interested in, in the, the miracles. I was really interested in the, some of the stories I'd heard about Wigglesworth, the people that he raised from the dead, and the, the way that he dealt with people, and just all kinds of things that I'd heard and read about him. And, um, and Brother Storm would tell me about the power of God in his services. And, oh, boy, I'd just make the hair stand up on the back of my neck, you know, when I'd hear this stuff. And it was like, wow. Oh, my goodness. This, that's what we need. Man, that's what we need. That's what we need. So anyway, to shorten the story, I know it's too long to say long story short, but uh, to shorten the story, we got in a, it was a midweek service. We got in a, a, not in this building, it was in the building we had over on uh, Watney many years ago. And um, uh, Wednesday night service, just simple service, uh, nothing special about it, but we got to worshiping God and and the presence of God settled in on us. And um, so after the service, he was uh, uh, sitting in my office and, and just kind of basking in the glory of God and just said, oh, wow, wasn't that wonderful? I mean, he just, he talked about it with such sweetness and such reverence. He said, wasn't that wonderful? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that was okay. I mean, we have that from time to time, so it wasn't unusual for us. And, and, and I kind of said something to that effect. I said, well, yeah, Brother Stormer, I, yeah, that was good, but, you know, I'm thinking nobody was healed. Nobody was crippled, got, you know, was told to walk or anything like that. And so I said, well, yeah, Brother Storman. I said, uh, um, it, w- it was good. I said, but we kind of have that all the time. Now, I've been talking to him all day long, hardly giving him time to get back to his hotel room to rest before the service. I've been talking to him all day long about the power of God, talking to him all day long about the presence of God, the move of God, the, the, the presence of God in Wigglesworth services and stuff like that. And I never will forget, bless his heart, this image is burned in my brain. He looked at me with a shocked look and said, well, good God, man, what are you looking for? I always like to impress our guest ministers, you know. And I, I realized right then, as soon as he said, as soon as it came out of his mouth, I realized, here I'm looking for something and I've got it all the time. Got the presence of God all the time and I'm looking past that to something that I've built up in my mind about what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be because of stories that I've read about other people. You know what I found? I learned this from that point in time. I found that the more you start appreciating what you have, the greater and greater things you'll see God do. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 22. I want to spend just a few moments this morning talking about um, somebody's life that was transformed by the power of God and by the name of Jesus. Luke chapter 22 Uh, where do I want to pick this up? Let's start reading in, uh, well, let's just start in verse 31. Jesus has been talking to the disciples and, and um, uh, Luke says this was a part of the Last Supper experience as well. John doesn't give us this part. Like I said, he filled in the blanks of what we didn't already have, I guess. 
John chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Moffat's translation says it this way. Satan has claimed the right to sift you as wheat. That'll make you think. What was there about Peter, about Peter's life, about Peter's experience that gave Satan what he thought was a right to destroy him? Well, the good news is Jesus overcame it. Jesus said, verse 32, but I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now, how is Satan going to sift you as wheat? Same way he's going to sift Peter as wheat, and that is by overcoming his faith. See, if the devil can't overcome your faith, he can't destroy you. If the devil can't overcome your faith, he can't do any of the things that he's threatening to do to you that Jesus identified as sifting as wheat. If the devil can't destroy your faith or overcome your faith, he can't run you through the ringer like he says he wants to or will do. Jesus said, but I prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus is telling them there's something coming that you don't have yet. And that's called conversion. Or what we know of as the new birth. That can't happen until Jesus is raised from the dead. We know that. And, G- and Peter then said to him, verse 33, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both unto prison and to death. Now, folks, that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds like a pretty good faith confession there, doesn't it? But notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Now, what I want you to see is, notice who Peter was before the power of God recreated him. The new birth came to him before he was baptized into the name of Jesus. Notice what he's like. He's got the right intentions. No question about that. He's a bold guy. We know that during Jesus' ministry, he's the one that steps out to walk on the water. He sees Jesus on the water. Everybody else is afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water with you. In other words, everything that, Peter, everything that Jesus did, Peter wanted to be part of. Now, folks, I've got to tell you something. God loves that. It's one of the characteristics that made Peter special to Jesus, made him part of his inner circle. But that can't be all you've got. Because just as Peter was bold and impulsive to want to jump out there and be a part of and experience the things of God, that impulsiveness also created instability in him. When Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison or even to death, he means it. But he doesn't really mean it. What I mean by that is his intent is pure. He thinks, yeah, I'll go. You bet. Yeah. I'll be a man of faith and power. But later on that night, we find out it's just paste and flour. Because Peter denies Jesus, just like Jesus said that he would. There's something interesting about this, and that is, uh, uh, I I don't want to, well, let let me just read it. Let's start, uh, skip with me over to verse 54. This is later on that same night when, it, when what Jesus said comes to pass. Then they took him, Jesus, and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they were set down together. Peter sat down among them. 
But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. Now, um, Matthew's translation, I think, says Jesus, uh, Peter cursed Jesus and said, I don't know him. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but he's vehemently denying what three people have identified as the truth. Now, here's what I want you to see in verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked on Peter. See, this is not happening somewhere where Jesus is not. This is happening within Jesus' earshot. Peter denies him twice. Peter, or Jesus hears him deny him twice. Here's Peter deny him twice and doesn't do anything. But the third time, after he vehemently denied him, Jesus turns and he looks at him. And then the cock crows. Now, this is a guy who said, Jesus, I'll be with you under prison. I'll go to prison with you. And I'll even follow you under death if necessary. And he meant it when he said it. But he didn't have what it took to stay steady. He didn't have what it took when the first little girl said, you were one of them. Yeah, I was one of them. I can tell you the stuff that I saw him do too. Same thing for the second time, the same thing for the third time. And Jesus, the Lord looked and turned, uh, turned and looked upon Peter, verse 61. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Verse 62. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, I want you to notice who Peter is. I can relate to a lot of things about Peter. He means well. He loves Jesus with all his heart. He intended to do exactly what he said, follow him to death and uh, prison and to death if necessary. But he didn't have the courage. There was something about his inner character that was not strong enough to stand up even after jesus looks at him and say wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i don't know what i'm denying him for of course i'm with this guy i love him i've seen him do great things he's from god there's all kinds of things peter could have said peter knows who he is peter's the one in mark chapter 16 that said thou art the christ the son of the living god and jesus responds and says flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you but my father which is in heaven he knows no lack of knowledge here it's a lack of strength now i don't know about you but i've done some things that i've wept bitterly over when it comes to disappointing god but notice what happens turn with me over to john chapter 20 john chapter 20 Verse 19, this is the day of Jesus' resurrection. Earlier in the day, they've run to the, the tomb and found that it was empty. Mary Magdalene told them that, uh, that Jesus had been taken away. They ran to the tomb. Peter and John ran, saw it for themselves. It's an empty tomb. But verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, where the doors were shut, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Please notice that phrase. They're behind closed doors because they're afraid of the same people that crucified Jesus. 
So the, the fear that Peter felt a couple of days ago at the high priest's house when he denied Jesus three times, he's still feeling that same fear. So Jesus looking at him and him weeping bitterly has not salved or, or assuaged his fear. He's still afraid. That has to be the only reason why he denied three times on the night that Jesus was betrayed, isn't it? I mean, if he's not afraid, what is he denying for? He's still afraid. Three days later, he's still afraid. And they're behind closed doors. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto him, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive you the Holy Ghost. By the way, just an interesting note, interesting to me at least, uh, from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, which was the Bible of Jesus' day, this is the same word breathed as when God breathed this, this spirit of life into Adam in Genesis. So when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost, if they don't get something, Jesus has just tricked them. But the fact that it's the same action of breathing on the disciples as when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, that tells me that something is taking place here. Well, what is taking place? Well, what did Jesus say they'd get? He said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, notice the context that he speaks of receiving the Holy Ghost. Because we talk about the Holy Ghost in a variety of different ways. We talk about being filled with the Holy Ghost. We're talking about with the evidence of speaking in other tongues and so forth. So there are a lot of different things that we talk about the Holy Ghost coming upon someone for, to either inspire them to do something, give them revelation, or give them uh, strength to take action, or whatever the case may be. There's a bunch of different ways that the Bible speaks of the Holy Ghost. So what does Jesus mean when he says, receive ye the Holy Ghost? Notice what he says. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 23, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So when Jesus says, Receive you the Holy Ghost, he's talking about in connection with the remission of sins. Now, what is the remission of sins? Salvation. It's what we consider salvation. See, the modern-day church talks about the forgiveness of sins. The New Testament does not. Forgiveness of sins means God's overlooked something. He gives you a pass on something. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is not a pass on your sins. Salvation is the remission or the removal of your sins. See, the devil's okay with you thinking you've been forgiven. You haven't. You've been made new. He did away with your sin nature. It doesn't exist anymore. But as long as you think you're forgiven, the devil can keep bringing it up to you and make you think, oh, well, God overlooked it, but you know what you did. Well, the remission of sins means you didn't do it. The one that did that is dead. Now you're alive in Christ. Are you out there? So when Jesus said, receive the Holy Ghost, he says it in connection with the remission of sins. So if he says, receive the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins, what happens to these guys? They're saved. This is the beginning of the church. Now, you know, it's an interesting thing because sometimes we look at uh, John chapter 14, verse 12, where it says, uh, Believeth, verily, uh, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also. And some of the modern-day church, not all of it, but some of the modern-day church will say, Well, yeah, see, we're doing the greater works. We're getting people saved because Jesus never got anybody saved. 
He just got his disciples saved. So I'm all for getting people saved. Don't get me wrong. And I don't care what you call it. It doesn't matter to me. But you cannot say, if you believe what the Bible says, you cannot say that Jesus didn't get people saved so that salvation or the new birth wouldn't be a part of the works Jesus did. It was the last work that he did, no question about that. But it was part of the works that he did too. So in my thinking, that means there are greater works yet to come. Now, don't get me wrong. The new birth is a miracle. I'm not saying, well, yeah, there's people getting saved, but then there's miracles. No, everything's a miraculous work that God does. I don't think God can sneeze unless it's a miracle. Everything God does is a miracle because he's he's the miraculous God. He's a miracle worker. Everything he does is miraculous. Everything he does supersedes these laws of nature. Everything he does is supernatural. Now, we know that this is the case because it says in Luke chapter 22. um, Well, you won't have to turn there. Let me turn real quickly so I read it accurately without just quoting it. Luke chapter 22, which tells us the same thing that John is speaking of here in John chapter 20. I'm sorry, it's not Luke chapter 22. It's Luke chapter 24. Jesus leads them out as far as to Bethany and lifts up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Now, these are the same guys, Peter uh, specifically, that was afraid to admit that he was with Jesus and huddled up behind closed doors because he's afraid of the Jews. He's afraid the Jews, along with the others, they're afraid that the Jews will do the same thing to them that they did to Jesus, and they just watched Jesus being crucified. Now they're openly in the temple. They're not hiding anymore. Why? Because something miraculous happened to them. Something miraculous happened to them that changed everything about them. Now Peter, who had good intentions before, just not the strength to carry him out, is openly in the temple. He's not afraid of anybody anymore. Now, John tells us that the first thing that Jesus did after they were born again is talk to them, or the first time he appears to them again, is he talks to them, specifically Peter, and he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Ask him three times, do you love me? Third time, each time he answers the same thing, he said, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Two times he said, feed my sheep. One time he said, feed my lambs. The third time that Jesus asked him, Peter, do you really love me? Peter was grieved. The, Holy, the, the scripture says Peter was grieved in his spirit. I don't have any doubt but what Peter is remembering back just a few short days before when he stood there and Jesus heard him, witnessed him, denying him. So now he's asking him three times. Peter denied him three times. Now Jesus is asking him three times, do you really love me? So what does Jesus do? Jesus says, be the leader of my sheep. In other words, take the place of the shepherd. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 1. Now that Peter is changed, we see the first thing that happens is in verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spake before concerning Judas, which was guide unto them that was with Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. How in the world does Peter become a Bible scholar? He's saying we need to fulfill the scripture. 
If I'm John, I'm going to be thinking, who are you? You're a fisherman. What do you know about the scripture? Acts chapter 2, they're filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, people are mocking them. People don't know what to think. Some are mocking. Verse 14, but Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them, you men of Judea. And all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Seriously? Peter? Going to preach about Joel? Folks, I've been pastoring for almost 30 years, and I don't know much about Joel. Where's Peter get this? Notice how the Holy Spirit has now transformed his life. He's already taken the leadership. Then he's filled with the Holy Ghost. And now he's speaking on behalf of the people. Or on behalf of God to the people. People are pricked in their hearts. Verse 37. Acts chapter 2 verse 37. The people heard this. And they were pricked in their heart and said, Peter, uh, said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice Peter's answer. Now, whatever the change is in Peter, Peter should be able to tell them, right? I mean, if anybody's going to know, it should be him. Notice he said, Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What does Peter tell them? He tells them the two things that have happened to him. He received the Holy Ghost for the remission of sins. And now he's been filled with the Holy Ghost and speaks with other other tongues. So what is he telling the people they should do? Exactly what he did. Exactly what happened to him is what should take place for them too. Acts chapter 3. You remember the story at the beautiful gate. Peter said, verse 6, the man's looking to, to receive money from them. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. How does Peter know he's got the name? By hearing the same things that we read in John fourteen, fifteen, and 16. Now, let me ask you a question. Stop right here. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are saved? Have received the remission of sins? How many of you have been filled with the Holy Ghost? With the evidence of speaking in other tongues? Then at this point in time, does Peter have one thing more than you've got? He may have a different ministry call. He may have a different work for God to do that God has for him to do. Different plan for God, a different plan of God for his life than you do. But you've got exactly the same thing he does. Right? So Peter said, such as I have, give by thee. Folks, that's always going to be the case. You can't give somebody something you don't have. That's why God wants you to prosper. So you can have something to give. That's why he wants you to know who you are in Christ. So you can have something to give. Such as I have, give by thee. That's always the law of God. You can't give what you don't have. And I think that's what a lot of the modern day church is trying to do. We're trying to talk people into doing things we're not doing ourselves. And it falls on deaf ears. It's flat. It's dry. It's dull. There's nothing. There's no life to it. Because we don't recognize what we have in the name of Jesus. So he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the guy does. 
His feet and his ankle bones receive strength. And he leaps up and he walks and he praises God. Notice Peter says in verse 16, he's explaining what the deal is. He said in verse 12, it's not by our power or our own holiness that we made him to walk. In other words, we don't have anything in and of ourselves. What we have, anybody and everybody can have. Another way to say that, verse 16. And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong. Whom you see and know, yea, the faith which is by him has given him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. How's faith come? Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Notice Peter does not say, because I've got a special call from God. I have something special in the name of Jesus. Don't try this at home. But I have something special in the name of Jesus that caused this to happen. No, he said faith in his name. Well, if faith in his name comes by hearing the word, then you hearing the word can produce the same faith in his name. And should. Are you out there? Is this making any sense to you whatsoever? He goes further. Chapter 4 tells us about him being called before the elders. The chief priests and the, the high priests and so forth, the Jewish Sanhedrin, same group that some of the different people, uh, I'm sorry, some of the people have changed. But it's the same group that put Jesus to death. Verse 7, and when they set him in the midst, set Peter and uh, John in the midst of them, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them. Verse 10, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. What does Peter know? What has happened to Peter in two months or less? He's gone from a guy that would not stand up for Jesus when Jesus was at his lowest point. He meant well, but did not have the strength of character to stand up and say, yeah, I'm with him. Now, two months later, he's talking to the very people that he used to be afraid of and spitting in their eye. Say, it's the name of Jesus. He goes further in verse 12. He said, neither is there any, any, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What does Peter know he has? He knows he's got the name. And if that's not the purpose for John telling us what Jesus said on the night of the Last Supper, what is? By the way, this word saved is the word sozo. There are two words in the New Testament that are used for salvation. They both come from the same root word. One is soterio and the other is sozo. And they both mean basically the same thing. Sozo is a little bit stronger term than soterio is. But sozo means to rescue, to heal, to save, to deliver, uh, and something else. What did I leave out? Uh, make whole. So where he says there's no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved, you can say there's no other name under heaven whereby men may be delivered. There's no other name under heaven where men may be made whole. There's no other name under heaven where men may be healed. All of those meanings are the same. It's an all-inclusive term. Well, a lot of the church will say that, that things are different now. The early church was different. They had different things than we had. Have you ever heard anybody say the name of Jesus is different? Nobody has. You know why nobody says the name of Jesus is different? Because since there's no other name under heaven whereby, whereby men may be saved, if the name of Jesus is different, nobody can be saved. 
Let me run through a couple of these real quick. Further in Acts chapter 4, it says, verse 17, the council decides, and they say, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Notice their concern is not that they get out of town, it's that they quit using the name. That they quit using the name. Folks, I don't think any honest person can read the early chapters of the book of Acts and conclude anything other than the name of Jesus held a much greater place in the days of the early church or the early days of the church than it does in the modern day church. And the modern day church whines and moans and says, well, why can't we have what they used to have? Because we don't have the same reverence for the name. We've got the same name. The question is, are we using the name in the same way? So they said they threatened them henceforth to speak to no man in this name. Verse 18, and they called him and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered. These are the, Peter's the guy that was afraid a couple of months ago. Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken more unto you than unto God, you be the judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What are the things that they've seen and heard? Things that they've seen and heard in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? They go to their own company. They're let go and they go to their own company. And they say, beginning in verse 29, they start praying. And they said, now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants so that with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal and the signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. What do they know? They know the name of Jesus is the key. They know the name of Jesus is the key. They're not saying, Lord, give us a greater anointing. They're saying, Lord, give us boldness to speak by doing wonders, signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were prayed and assembled together. Which would be an indication, if I'm in the prayer group, that would be an indication that God said, wow. Finally, people praying the right stuff. And it tells about things that were done. Verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Chapter 5, a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira with his wife sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the land, the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart, and thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God? And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, there's no mention of the name of Jesus here, but can I ask you a question? Where is their power to cause liars in church to die? It's a real question. If you know where I can find that, I'd really like to know. I'd use it sparingly, but I would use it. What's happening here? Now, I don't see anything in Jesus' ministry where Jesus cursed somebody or or said something to them and they died. Do you? How could we possibly conclude that this is not a work being done in the name of Jesus? Even though the name of Jesus is not mentioned. Peter is standing in the office that he's standing in because Jesus directed him to. So he's operating in the name of Jesus, whether he ever uses the name or not. 
Same thing happens with his wife. Three hours later, she comes in. Church must have lasted long in those days. She finally gets her hair done, so she comes in. <laughs> Peter asks her. She says the same thing. The same guys that just get back from burying her husband and take her out and bury her. Could this be a greater work? I'm not sure it's greater in quality than anything Jesus did, but it's sure a different work. Matter of fact, there was one time in Jesus' ministry where uh, James and John came to him and said that um, uh, a a city rejected him. And so they asked, are you going to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Here, apparently, on the other hand, is the Holy Ghost inspiring Peter to take action to protect the church. It goes down after these things, verse 12, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. wonder how those were done, if not in the name of Jesus. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portion. Of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the believers, but the people magnified them. That must have been what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They must have been giving something, trying to gain a place with the apostles. The last part of chapter 4 tells us about how Barnabas had some land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So apparently Ananias and Sapphira are trying to do the same thing that Barnabas was inspired of the Lord to do for an ulterior motive. Else why I mention it that nobody tried to dare and try, nobody dared join themselves to them. What's the point in putting that in there if it's not relative to the story? And believers were the more multi- and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the passing, the least, the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. They came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. These had to be works that were done in the name of Jesus. Now, what's interesting, we could keep going further and further. Some of these we've looked at before, not all of them, but some of them we looked at before. But we could look at other things up until the 15th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 15 is the last point where we see anything or hear anything about Peter in the book of Acts. But what's interesting about this is that Peter seemed to ride a wave of healing miracles up until the point that James became the leader of the church. Once James appears in Acts chapter 15 as the one that's now the, the pastor or the leader of the church of Jerusalem, then we don't hear too much about Peter and we don't hear too much about uh, Uh, Well, we don't hear anything more about uh, signs and wonders and miracles that are done in the name of Jesus through Peter's hands. But we do hear something else about Peter. And that's over in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, we see that Peter has slipped back into his old ways. Let me bring this out just real quickly. Paul writes to the church at Galatia or the churches at Galatia, the region of Galatia. And he says that when Peter... Well, let's see. Where are verse 11, starting with verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. He said, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For that before that certain came from James, that means from the church in Jerusalem, these are Jewish believers. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him insomuch, that means separated themselves from the Gentile believers, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation or separation between the two groups. 
But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, which he did, he wasn't bound by the law of Moses any longer, then why do you compel the Jews to live as do the, why do you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you're a hypocrite, Peter. You're not living like the Jews. Yet when Jewish believers and leaders come from Jerusalem, you act like the Gentiles are supposed to live like you won't live yourself. So what is Peter doing? Peter has a tendency or followed a tendency to fall back into his old, worry, his old ways. And that was the real split between Peter and, and, uh, and Paul. The Bible says that it came pretty heated between the two of them. And there's no question Peter was in the wrong. Why? Why? How does Peter go from being a man that's using the, the power of the name of Jesus in such a great degree to where now he's afraid of the Gentiles? Or I'm sorry, afraid of the Jews from Jerusalem and pulls away from the Gentiles. Why would that be? Folks, there's only one answer, and that is the name of Jesus started losing some of its priority in Peter's life. Because before then, Peter's doing everything he's doing in the name of Jesus, and he doesn't care about anybody. If he didn't care about the Sanhedrin, who at the time had the power to kill him, put him in the cross just like he did Jesus, what does he care about the Jews that are leaders of the church? He started playing politics instead of holding fast to the name of Jesus. Now, let me close with this. I want you to look within two scriptures, one in Mark chapter 9 and the other in Matthew chapter 17. Let me close with this. What is the purpose? We're talking about miracles. I don't ever want to stop talking about miracles. We want to expect miracles. We want to recognize the place that miracles have. Jesus told us what the works that we did, or the works he did, we'll do also. That has to be miracle power. He said we'd even do greater works. That has to be miracle power too. But what's the point? Remember I said before, Jesus didn't say that we'd have success using his name, that we'd make a name for ourselves. I think a lot of times we're looking for power. We're looking for the miracle working power of God so that we have a name for ourselves. Lord, do a miracle and make sure everybody knows about it. Now, there are times where he does. That happened with... You're not coming to make me stop, are you? Once of that was enough. We see in, uh, in the book of Acts where um, uh, a notable miracle was done. The, the Jewish uh, council couldn't deny that the notable miracle was done with the man that was healed at the beautiful gate. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't stand against it. So they just tried to keep them from using the name any further. There are times where the Bible tells us that miracles were done in Paul's ministry so that whole cities were turned around from one, one experience. So there are times where things like that will happen. There's no question about it. But the whole point is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The whole purpose in miracles is for people's lives to be transformed. So when we think of public miracles, I think sometimes we, have it in the, the, we look at it from the wrong perspective. We're looking for public miracles to be done so that people are blessed. Well, that's not what public miracles are for. Public miracles are to transform people's lives. Well, what about me, Pastor Mike? My life's already been transformed. I'm already saved. I'm already, uh, my sins have already been remitted. I'm already filled with the Holy Ghost. What about me? Well, that's what I want you to see. 
there's a public side to miracles and there's a private side to miracles. Mark chapter 9. Here's the story of the man who brings his son who's possessed of the devil to Jesus. The disciples try to answer his need. Um, let's just start reading. I wasn't planning to read the whole thing, but better, better read it. Verse 14, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Please notice they couldn't. doesn't say they wouldn't. It says they couldn't. Now, if you go back and you look at uh, the chronological sequence of events, you'll find out Jesus has already delivered the authority of the devil, uh, the authority of uh, to the disciples to cast out devils and to heal the sick heal all manner of sickness and disease but here it says they couldn't so it's not that they didn't have the authority it's not that they didn't have the power something's keeping it from working and jesus answered him that i tried to get them to cast him out and they could not the disciples could not jesus answers him verse 19 jesus answers him he doesn't answer the disciples he doesn't say to the disciples oh you unfaithful bunch He answers him, the father, and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. What does Jesus know that the disciples don't know? Jesus knows it's the unbelief or the lack of faith of the father that's keeping the power that he delivered to the disciples from working. Now, why don't the disciples know that? Because they're servants. They don't know how this stuff works. At least not yet. So Jesus says to the father, bring him unto me. Now he knows the father is without faith. So Jesus has to fix that. We know in Mark chapter 6 verse 5 in his own hometown of Nazareth. Jesus who had the spirit of God without measure. Could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. In other words, his power was kept from working. Why? It says that he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now, remember when Jesus prayed for Peter? Peter, Satan has claimed the right to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will fail not. What's the answer in every, in every case? Faith. How does faith come? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, Romans ten seventeen says. How does faith in the name of Jesus come? By hearing and hearing by the word. How does faith for deliverance come? By hearing and hearing by the word. Scriptures on deliverance. Scriptures on the power of the name of Jesus to deliver. So he answers him. Says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer? You bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he, the little boy uh, in whom the spirit was, when he saw him, straightway the spirit tore him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And And the father said, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, Jesus, if you can do anything, if you have the ability to change this situation, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm the son of God, I can do anything. Isn't that how your Bible reads? Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said... If thou canst believe, 
All things are possible to him that believeth. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying there is, very simply, that there is no limit to what a believer can obtain in the name of Jesus. In other words, any and every miracle you need is in the name of Jesus and all you have to do is believe. Notice he didn't say all things are possible to people that go to the right church with an anointed pastor. I kind of wish he had said that. But that's not what he said. He didn't say all things are possible to him that gets in the right spiritual atmosphere when the power of God is moving. That's not what he said. He said all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, your miracle is available to you through your faith. There is no limit to the name of Jesus and the power that it holds. Whatsoever you call for, require, or ask in my name, I will do it. Why? Because he responds to faith of the individual. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 is a, uh, another account of the same story. Where later, the disciples come... And they ask a very simple question. Verse 20. or I'm sorry. Verse 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Now what was it they didn't believe? They certainly believed that the power of God would work or else they wouldn't have asked, Why couldn't we do it? See, if they had never done this before, they would have said, Jesus, we keep trying and this doesn't work. But they're surprised that it didn't work or else they wouldn't have asked the question. They said, why couldn't we do this? They know that he's given them the power to do it. They know that it's done, been done before. So they're asking, why couldn't we do this? What kept the power from working? They didn't know. Jesus did know. That's why Jesus answered the father, faithless generation. It's your lack of faith. It's your unbelief that's keeping this from working. Jesus fixes the faith of the, the father. By telling him what he did. And the father finally gets over to the place where he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That doesn't sound like great faith to me, but it is faith. It's 180 degrees different from where he was before. And that was enough for Jesus to help him. Now the disciples say, why couldn't we do this? You know what I like about this? They expected it to work. Why don't we? What is it that was different about them as servants that seems to provide and produce a greater expectation on their part than the modern-day Christian has, spirit-filled Christian has, from themselves? Folks, I've got to tell you, the modern-day church has fallen far short of its rights and privileges in the name of Jesus. So they said, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you that if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Please notice that phrase. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now some people get hung up on verse 21. How be it this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Can I ask you a question? What does prayer and fasting have to do with unbelief? Does faith come by praying? Does faith come by fasting? Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing. 
and hearing by the word of God. So what does prayer and fasting have to do with anything? See, some people have glommed onto that and said, oh, if you're going to get rid of the devil, you're going to have to pray and you're going to have to fast. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't come and find out that it didn't work for the Father and say, come back in a couple of days. I need to go pray and fast. Did he? What does praying and fasting do? Does it change God? Does it change his word? Does it change the power of his word? What does prayer and fasting change? You. Prayer and fasting changes you. The prayer and fasting very simply makes you more spiritually sensitive. It makes you more sensitive to the things of the spirit than it does natural things. That's why Jesus knew that it was unbelief on the part of the father and the disciples didn't know. Because he was prayed up and fasted up. He was as sensitive to the spirit as you can be. He kept himself in that spot. So when Jesus said, how be it this kind goeth not but by prayer and fasting, he's saying something's going to have to change in you so that you have the, uh, so that you have the knowledge to use the, the, the power effectively. Can you see that? But verse 20 is what I want you to see. For if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say, King James says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say. This word shall is the word would. In other words, he says, if you have faith, you'll talk. If you have faith, you'll speak. It's an amazing thing to me. In almost 30 years of pastoring, people still come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, how do I know if I really believe? What are you saying? Every time in Jesus' ministry where he identified faith, he identified it either through the words of somebody's mouth or the action that they took. You know what you're saying, don't you? How can you not know whether or not you believe? Because your words are the evidence of what you believe. If you're speaking the word, that is faith. And see what people really mean by that is, but I don't feel like it. Well, who cares about that? Faith doesn't work because you feel something. Faith doesn't fail because you don't feel something. Faith is evidenced by the words that you speak. So Jesus said... If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall or would say. Faith always talks. That's the point I want you to see. Faith always speaks. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing. Nothing goes a lot further than moving a mountain. Goes a lot further than moving a tree. Goes a lot further than moving one thing or another thing, and nothing shall be impossible to you. That would include miracles, wouldn't it? So what do we see? We see that everything in the name of Jesus is a miracle result when you place a demand on it in faith. I think we need to quit looking for public miracles and start producing private miracles. Because see, I can't control whether or not the Lord moves on me to raise somebody up from a wheelchair or, or something like that. I can't control that. Man, if I could control that, I would. But I can't. I don't have any control over that. Peter didn't have any control over that. The Holy Spirit moved upon him in Acts chapter 3 and he acted on it. But man doesn't control that. The power of God is not under man's control when it comes to somebody else. But the power of God in the name of Jesus is always under the control of the individual for themselves. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say, you will say, 
and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the exceeding greatness of the power that's in the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven where men might be saved, healed, delivered, set free, rescued, made safe and made sound. But, oh, Father, the name of Jesus carries the same power now as it always has. Thank you that that name belongs to us. Father, we commit that we'll use that name in a different way, in a greater way, because we know that you want, from your word, we know that you want us to have effective, successful use of the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that nothing is impossible unto us because we believe. Thank you, Father, that the same works Jesus did, we do also because we believe. Thank you, Father, for the greatness of the name of Jesus. That name that's above sickness. It's above cancer. It's above leukemia. It's above tumors. It's above blindness. It's above paralysis. Thank you, Father, that the name of Jesus is above every name. And in that name, because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, we receive our healing by faith in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that the name of Jesus is is greater than lack. Because Jesus took the chastisement of our peace upon him, we declare by faith in the name of Jesus that everything we put our hand to prospers that you bring blessings to our lives and to our businesses to our families Lord so that we can be a blessing unto others we thank you Father that the name of Jesus is above the work of the enemy to blind our loved ones minds and in that name we claim freedom We claim the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might see the truth and act thereon. Thank you, Lord, that the name of Jesus is greater than every name. There is no work of the enemy that can overcome our faith in the name of Jesus. Therefore, Father, we say by faith that our joy is full. By faith, our joy is full. Because that which hasn't been changed is being changed in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the authority that you've given us in your name. Amen.